0: Hello, dear friends and adventurers, it's Rob, the D&D wannabe, here with some exciting news. This podcast is now made possible in partnership with our good friends at Misty Mountain Gaming. Veteran-owned and operated, Misty Mountain is one of the largest dice companies in the world. They offer the widest selection of metal, gemstone, and glass dice combined for yourself, that special role player in your life, or your favorite podcast hosts. Just saying. Look for their booth at your next local comic, anime, or gaming convention, or find their products at mistymountaingaming.com.
1: Okay, on with the show. Wogbags? Yes, sir. Send to the next recruit. Yes, right away.
0: (laughs) Reporting for Assignment.
1: Oh, my, 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 look at you. You're just a big boy with those horns and flappy wings, aren't you? Wow, you really stand out from the crowd. Welcome to Minion Management. Let's see here. You must be Balthazar the Cambian, is that right? Well, Balthazzi, everything appears to be in order. Glad to have you on board. Now, about your first assignment. What are your skills? What are you, what are you bringing to the table in the terms of Gormonger the Bloodthirsty's Minion Army? I can fly with the speed of an eagle, attack multiple times per combat round.
0: I'm resistant to most types of damage and can shoot fire from my
1: fingertips at will. <laughs> Whoa! You are a solid contender! Roar! <laughs> Leave some foolhardy adventures for the rest of us, okay, champ? Uh,
0: right. So, where am I shipping off to, then? I was thinking I could join the raiding party that's scheduled to encounter the heroes
1: tomorrow. <laughs> you, you really? Are you serious? You really just want to sit on the side of the road and wait for the hapless adventurers and ambush them while they're on their way back from the dungeon with all their health and spells depleted just to try to catch them before they get that next long rest?
0: Yes, actually, that sounds like a fantastic opportunity for an easy
1: and decisive victory. Best to crush them quickly before their power grows, and... <laughs> well, sorry, Balthazzi. The raiding party is going to be goblins only. I mean, it's an ambush, yeah, and that's exciting, but we can't afford to waste a quality recruit like you on a stakeout-style encounter like that. You could be on the side of the road doing nothing for just hours on end. What's your next point of interest?
0: Okay, well... How about defending the treasure horde with the red dragon, Balefire?
1: Ooh, Balefire, Balefire, Balefire. Uh, Balefire doesn't work well with just anyone. We found a system that works, because, you know, he really likes to have the spotlight for himself. So we have riddled the tunnels and halls that lead into the treasure horde with a bunch of traps and some little minions who are there to make sure that they stay maintained and really make that journey a slog for any adventurers.
0: Kobolds, then. He's surrounded by an army of kobolds.
1: Yes! Kobolds, exactly! Kobolds and dragons! (laughs) It's like a scaly peanut butter and jelly, don't you think? In that it's childish and expected. I was gonna say classic, but uh, to each their own. So you're telling me that instead of giving the dragon an ally that could
0: actually complement his abilities, join him in aerial combat, and is resistant to his flame breath, who could really put the party at a disadvantage... You'd rather have a bunch of cannon fodder chipping away at their health and spells before they fight a lone dragon that they can all gang up on. Yeah. Marvellous, isn't it? I was going to say a flagrant mistake brought on by extreme OCD and rampant incompetence, or... Is this some sort of profiling thing?
1: Oh, whoa, 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 Fazzy! We do not profile here in minion management. We just try to make sure that everyone's skills are being put to where they'll be most thematic. You know what? I think I've got just the spot for you in our espionage branch. How would you feel about putting your abilities to use and infiltration? I want you to become a hireling with the adventuring party. You will carry their stuff and cook their meals and clean up after them, and then you'll report back to us. (laughs) Won't that be a pretty sweet payoff when, or more likely if, they ever realize that the guy they hired and have been paying a peasant's wage this whole time is secretly reporting to their enemies? Huh? Huh? What do you say? Actually, come to think of it, I've got an inside scoop
0: that a management position is about to be vacated.
1: Oh! Oh really? Oh, I don't seem to have anything about that here. In uh, in which department? Minion management. Pretty sure someone would have told me. I mean, after all, I I am in the management of that department. I'm.
0: Perhaps uh, I could apply uh, for oh, that position um, hmm. after its current occupant gets fired.
1: This is so not cool. Ah! Hmm.
0: That's better. Wogbegs, was it?
1: Yeah. Oh. What's that smell? uh.
0: Send in the next recruit.
1: Yes, sir. Right away.
0: Guess who's back, 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 back again, again, again. Rob and Steve, Steve, Steve. It's the twins, twins, twins. Guess who's back? Uh, it's, it's us. It's Bardic Twinspiration! A new episode! That, that actually worked out better than I thought it was going to. <laughs> I just, I... Like all my dungeon mastering
2: works out better than we thought. <laughs> uh, improv. That elusive skill. Yes,
0: it's Rob, D and D wannabe, back again talking about Dungeons and Dragons and trying to improve your experience with the game, here with my brother.
2: Yeah, I'm Steve. I'm D and D dad of three. <laughs> Is the Twitter uh, handle taken? <laughs> to the interwebs. Uh, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you once again. For coming back for yet another episode of listening to two level one humans with no class such as ourselves and that's it we're we're npcs in somebody
0: else's game (laughs) uh
2: we are continuing our thoughts uh, as we have been for much longer than expected regarding really cranking up the combats at your table making sure that you can uh, stave off your players combat fatigue so to speak getting tired of the monotony of combats that are you know a little bland a little monotonous a little blase we have discussed some ways previously to mix up the environment to mix up the lighting to provide them with environmental elements such as cover or elevation that they can take advantage of to really provide them with opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have or deprive them of their safety net, the actions that they know that they can always fall back on because they're the optimal thing to do in every situation until, until you take away the thing that they rely on and force them to look at the other half of that character sheet. But now we're continuing to talk about some things that you as a DM can insert into the combat To further mix things up and make your encounters more dynamic, more unique, and most importantly, more memorable. That's right. If you create
0: even one or two unforgettable encounters over the course of your campaign, you did a good job. Dungeon mastering done. Give this person an award. That's... I mean, this sounds a little cheesy. That's why I come to the table, is to make a memory, right, to have an experience that I couldn't have in my extremely mundane and unremarkable normal life, and to have something to talk about, or that I want to talk about, or write about, to receive some new inspiration, that is impossible if all of your combats just kind of feel the same. D&D is an action movie. You gotta have some action.
2: You know, you can definitely recall the thing that I'm having difficulty recalling right now because I heard it from you. Something about playing D&D affects your brain the same way as an actual real-life experience. I don't remember what study that was, or you, you, you go ahead and tell them.
0: Yep. Unlike video games and unlike board games and unlike books where we are passively involved in the narrative. D&D is a dynamic game where we make choices and those choices have consequences and it simulates a fantastic version of real life. So when our brains store those memories, they treat them as though they happened to us. It makes these experiences extremely personal and much more memorable. I couldn't tell you anything that happened over the events of the last board game we played. And I could tell you some very memorable things that happened through playthroughs of Skyrim and Fallout 4 where I had a little bit more involvement, but I can tell you a lot <laughs> too much about the D&D that I've played because that's how our brains work.
2: Yeah. You will be hard-pressed to find a DD and d player who cannot tell you the story Of their very first character even decades later and it's because (laughs) they might not they might
0: forget their very first campaign but they'll all tell you about their character (laughs)
2: well and that's why it's because there is less of a degree of separation as you said than you would experience playing a video game you are invested in that character and the things that happen to that character feel like they're happening to you or at least they do if you, you know, I'm sure that there's some form of d d that you don't feel that invested in, but, you know, the way that has become popular, you know, in recent years, the way that I play DNT is you put a little bit of yourself into a character, or you put a little bit of the character into yourself. And those moments that your character experiences stay with you, you know, even years down the road. And you don't want that series of memories for your players who have taken this much time and energy and invested it into these characters and into your story to be filled with multiple iterations of extremely similar combat encounters. Mm -hmm. Combat takes up a lot of time in any campaign session in which it occurs it's likely to be the majority of that session and do you really want them to have the same memory over and over again? I'm pretty sure there's some (laughs) bad movies that are based off that.
0: You know what, I go to work every day in my real life, in the meat space, and my day-to-day life is very predictable, it's very monotonous, my Wednesdays are a lot like my Tuesdays are a lot like my Mondays, are a lot like last Fridays. You don't want your fantasy adventuring <laughs> heroes to have the same problem
2: right because this is you know D&D is a fantasy D&D is an escape D&D is a chance for you to live your best life that you have no possibility of living in the real world
0: right so let's let's what is it let's let's take it up a notch you know it's bam
2: <laughs> all right emerald all right emerald <laughs> uh emerald as a dm okay
0: man i would i would pay to play that game
2: so let's talk about My one experience as a DM, because let's face it, I'm not going to get to use that poll very often.
0: I think we've used it every episode. Uh, I'm I'm trying to work
2: it in. I'm trying to stay relevant to the DMs that are tuning into this, especially because the last episode and this episode have been very DM focused, and I want to stay relevant. Lost minds of Fandelver. The first encounter that you have there is a group of goblins. The third encounter that you're likely to have in that campaign is a group of humans first encounter in curse of strahd group of wolves probably yeah and i think a lot of people's first campaigns are going to be groups of a thing and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that Uh, as we mentioned in a previous episode having large groups of a certain type of monster will add you know, kind of a theme to your campaign. Like you're working your way through the goblin tribe, or you're rooting out the group of bandits that have entrenched themselves in a town. That stuff works really well. But it will get monotonous for your players very quickly to continue to fight the same monster with the same stat block using the same attacks against them. But I do think of a particular campaign the one i'm in right now that you're running where our party came up against a group of kobolds Mm -hmm. but we didn't have that same monster fatigue so to speak when fighting your kobolds because you took some steps to alleviate that
1: right
0: wizards of the coast has recognized that the lower levels are especially, are kind of designed to have you take on lots of little guys and not a lot of singular big guys. Yep. And it is very not interesting to fight the same exact guy over and over and over and over and over again. So I think I think we're up to somewhere in the realm of five or six different kinds of kobolds presented either in the Monster Manual or in Volo's Guide to Monsters. And... I made sure to pepper the mines with a few of each. So you had some melee kobolds, you had some ranged kobolds, you had some magic kobolds, you had the kobold inventors, you had the kobold dragon shields, who are melee masters and high AC combat savants. And in any particular encounter that you had as you made your way to their dwelling, you would meet... A little band of at least three different kinds of kobolds in them. And the different combinations of them made each encounter feel different and made each individual kobold feel unique.
2: Yeah, the first encounter that we came up against had uh, three kobolds all-wielding slings. The second encounter that we came up against had three wielding little spears, uh, a very spurt-esque (laughs) <laughs> uh, kobold inventor that ran up and you know pelted us with bees there was a kobold in the back that was slinging spells and a kobold that suicide bombed us from the back yeah yeah so despite the fact that we were fighting a big group of kobolds it felt entirely different from you know encounters in Fandelver where it was a room full of the same goblin goblin with bow and goblin with dagger yeah or short sword I made sure that whenever I had a big group of goblins, I designated these guys are going to start with their bows out, these guys are not, just because I didn't want it to get excessively samey. You'll know, you notice that uh, even if you're using a single stat block, most monsters have more than one type of attack or more than one type of weapon that they're capable of utilizing. Most intelligent monsters, anyway. Start by doing that. Mix up who's wielding what weapons, and then especially in the cases of those low-level monsters where you have different varieties and different stat blocks, make sure you take advantage of those because it will really up the, the tactics required from your players and at least the variety of <laughs> attacks and spells that they're being subjected to.
0: Even the monsters that don't have the variety of stat blocks like the kobolds do, it's not difficult to change that. You know, the kobold inventor and... The dragon shield and the traditional kobold all have different HP values, all have different AC values, and they all have different weapons. Do that to, I think there's only one type of bugbear presented Mm -hmm. uh, with the books that we have right now, and they come with a morning star, they don't have shields, they have pretty high dexterity for big brutish monsters. Throw in a couple of bugbears with shields, a couple of bugbears with crossbows, Have a bugbear that looted some half-plate off of somebody that he killed. Have an erudite bugbear sorcerer who picked up a few spells here and there. It doesn't take a lot of effort to swap out a weapon to change an armor class or to actually roll for the hit
2: points. Yeah, you know, you, you give one bugbear plate armor and suddenly... He's unique, you know, your players are going to assume a lot of stuff about this bugbear.
0: They're going to want to know about him.
2: Yeah, is the one that has the plate armor and, you know... They're going to ask his name. <laughs> suddenly it's a contest to see who can kill the one in plate armor because he's obviously the leader. I have seen some D&D content creators out there recommend that you roll HP for every NPC that the player characters face. And then you you roll low on this guy. Well, he's a little runt, sickly little kobold or something like that. Or you roll max on this thing, and this kobold is the size of a dwarf, and uh, you know has as many muscles brimming off of him as your Goliath barbarian. I, I'm personally a big fan of efficiency, and you know I'm I kind of lean towards taking the averages in order just. Make setting things up a little bit simpler. Because, I mean, where do
0: you stop there? You know, if you're going to roll HP for every creature, do you roll stats for every creature? Is your beefy kobold also stronger than the
2: other kobolds? Is his constitution different? Well, maybe when you set that up, you say, okay, I have rolled extra hit points for this guy. He's obviously a beefcake. Let's also give him, you know, a plus two to the average damage roll. You've made him a little bit more unique. You're taking away a little bit of the randomness, you're keeping the efficiency, but whenever one of your characters is faced with him, it's going to feel different than when they're facing the guy standing next to him. I can see the uh, the attraction. but I'm not that way. I'm not necessarily recommending that course of action, but I am intrigued by it. I am definitely not recommending that course of action.
0: <laughs> I think there are way better ways to spend... Your time as a dungeon master. But again, I do see the attraction to it. There's, I mean, there's lots of other little ways. I think maybe we should have our own episode about what you can do to a stat block for a monster to make them really stand out as an individual. Because there are things like fairly standard cookie-cutter qualities that certain monsters have, like pack tactics that wolves and kobolds have that can be applied to basically any monster that you have the desire to staple it onto. There is aggressive that orcs have that lets you dash as a bonus action if it's towards an enemy. There's the brute quality that bugbears and some other creatures have, where they get to roll an extra damage dice every time they hit with a melee attack. Lots of little things that you can change to make your individual standout creatures feel a cut above the rest. But for the sake of just sheer variety, mixing up some weapons or armor or hit points or armor class or damage rolls will alleviate that sense of drudgery from repeatedly encountering the same type of enemy.
2: I mean, your characters, your players, actually, are going to get a sense of, okay, you know, this enemy type probably has around roughly this many hit points you know and it's going to shake them up a little bit it's going to make them feel really cool when they attack one of these things who had you know less and kill it in one hit or it'll really make them question life when they you know crit and max out their damage against one of these guys and it's still coming back for the next round
0: and this next one will seem obvious won't it though if, if, you're, if you're a dungeon master that's not already doing this, come into the Discord and talk to me about how your campaigns are going. But making sure that you mix up the type of monster, not just changing up what the same type of monster is or can do or looks like, but making sure that there is variety in the type that you are facing. When you throw some goblins in, adding a few wargs or some hobgoblins or some bugbears, is very important towards making sure that your players don't get worn out on facing the same kind of thing over and over again.
2: Oh yeah, what would that combat in the minds of Moria in the Fellowship of the Ring have been if it had been all goblins and that cave troll had never showed up? Mm-hmm. Like that made that fight scene in both you know movies, books, whatever. And then you take that, you take care of the cave troll, you go out and you have swarms of goblins. And then you drop in a Balrog.
0: Right. And, you know, not only, to your point, are we having different monsters in different encounters, right? Because first we encounter the Ringwraiths. Then from the Ringwraiths to the Watcher in the Water to the Orcs to the Cave Troll to the Balrog. And then on from there, facing different types of monsters in subsequent encounters. But mixing up the types of creatures involved in a single combat. Like you said, adding a cave troll to an orc fight made a world of difference. When the Easterlings are marching up to Minas Tirith. Mm -hmm. Is it Easterlings of Minas Tirith? Yep. Yeah, uh, Pelinor Fields. That fight had so many things going on. It had humans, it had orcs, it had Easterlings, it had oliphants, eventually swarms of ghost armies wound up showing up. You had riders on horseback, you had foot soldiers, you had siege engines. Man, that was an interesting fight because every time you turned your head, you had at least three different kinds of creature on screen.
2: Yeah. You know, and no one expected the the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, no one expected the Spanish Inquisition. Um no one like if you think in terms of D and D, you're having an expected encounter with goblins, and then a devil shows up. If you think about Pelennor Fields, you're having an expected encounter with orcs, and then the undead Nazgul show mm-hmm. up. Or then freaking oliphants with siege towers affixed to their backs, br- bristling with archers. Um, you know, mixing that up really adds to that i I can't think of a better word i keep bringing it up that dynamic element to your combat
0: um yeah as you just say and there's some very obvious pairings i feel like you ought to put certain monster stat blocks next to other monster stat blocks just because you're gonna find them right ghouls
2: and ghasts and whites for example goblins and hobgoblins i mean you know it's all throughout the the fandelver module goblins and bugbears and hobgoblins they are all goblinoid creatures they go together yeah all goblinoids
0: there's a lot of fantasy culture around goblins and wargs having a relationship and how where you find one you're likely to find another where you find cultists to fiendish entities you're likely to find imps you know, maybe a Cambion, where you find dragons, you are likely to find kobolds, mm-hmm. and where you find Drow, you're going to find driders and Dragaloths.
2: Sure, and they do the same thing in, uh, like, the Elder Scrolls series, where you find a Daedric cultist, they're gonna summon a clan fear. Mm-hmm. Where you find a mage, they're gonna summon a fire elemental. You know, where you find mammoths, there are giants protecting them. Where you find the Falmer, you're going to find those little chitinous insect things things, that are just so awful. And I hated them. Terrible. So there are going to be associations between, you know, like one race or one creature and another. And I personally, you know, if I was to design a campaign yesterday before we started talking about this, I probably would have very much fallen into the comfort zone of making my campaign arcs very thematic by having you deal with a particular type of enemy. Like, okay, in this town, we're going to fight werewolves. Mm -hmm. We're going to fight a lot of werewolves, but mix up the type of were creature, uh, add in some other Gothic horror creatures, you know, spice it up a little bit, make it to where you're engaging your melee characters, and you're engaging your ranged characters. Make it to where you're not just having a bunch of people rolling to hit, but you're challenging the saving throws of that paladin and plate armor while also harrying the spellcasters on the back line. And you can do it from a mechanicals perspective like that. You can mix it up based on flavor. But once again, hitting the same kind of creature over and over again is just gonna and getting hit by them gets kind of monotonous.
0: Also, I think it's interesting to play with the idea of going against type. You know, of course you're going to find vampire spawn where there is a vampire, or you're going to find zombies where there's a necromancer and the like, uh, wargs where there are goblins, but pairing monsters that have not traditionally been seen together can add a very new dynamic, not just to the encounter, but to your story. What is the drow doing on the surface cooperating with the bard in this town? What is a illithid doing cooperating with a rakshasa? Uh, What have they got going on together? Things like that will surprise and delight or intimidate your players and start them asking questions. And you don't even have to have the answers right away. It can just be a fun and interesting thing, but it'll be a great exercise trying to narratively justify some odd monster pairings.
2: You know, that's probably a really good idea for your players who have, you know, been in a few campaigns and kind of know what to expect out of a rakshasa. They know the backwards pod tiger demons or t- devil demons, mo, they're fiend. Technically
0: they don't fit into either. Yeah, there's a there's a whole group of fiends that aren't demons or devils.
2: Weird. So the new player at your table might be like, okay, tiger person and octopus face—they're working together, okay. But your experienced player, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be blowing the mind of the veteran, right? You're going to have—they're going to be doing that calculus, <laughs> mental gymnastics, <laughs> yeah—in their—in their brain, just trying to figure out. What on earth is going on? Why are the aberrations cooperating with the, you know, fiends from the Hells and the Infernal plane? And, you know, what could they possibly have to gain from cooperating with one another? And you don't have to say anything to make that happen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, another thing that was really big in 4th edition, the idea of monster roles. In 4th edition, after you had the monster's name it would be classified as artillery or brute or some other classifications because there were roles to play in a combat.
2: Go me, I didn't even realize that. Yeah,
0: so you would have, you know, a fairly easy to hit thing that had a lot of hit points and did a good amount of damage and was primarily melee focused, and that would be the brute, and you would run them in at your party head on. And then while they were occupied with the Brute, you would pair the Brute with some artillery who's going to be peppering the party from a distance, either with spells or with ranged attacks. There are a few other roles. I never ran for e so I'm not super familiar with them. But you were expected to pair complementary and different types of enemies, ones who fit into these mechanical roles, if you really... Wanted to challenge your players and get the most out of the system. And while 5e doesn't really touch on that, it's still a good idea. <laughs> uh, you want to put a shield guardian with your wizard so that it can run up and be punching the ever loving crap out of the party while the wizard is in the back, buffing it and itself and fireballing the group. You know, you want to put the bugbears in up with the party as the goblin archers are firing from afar. You want to have a healer keeping all the little mobs up and alive or protecting the boss.
2: Are there any atypical monster pairings that you're a particular fan of because of the way in which their abilities complement each other?
0: I I have been assembling kind of a
2: list of one-two
0: punch Monsters, as I've been calling them. Monsters whose abilities really seem to complement one another. I won't get too deep into it, but I would encourage dungeon masters with low mid-level parties to check out Vrocks and Vargwheels.
2: Yep, that sounds familiar.
0: Yep, uh, you've faced that pairing before. You and uh, Gore and Fife and Rin uh, faced that in the Reawakening campaign. The Vargwheels and the Vrox have abilities that only reach their full potential when the players are afflicted by a certain status effect that the other creature can also inflict on the party.
2: Mm. Yeah, that was a very trying encounter, and we did lose a player character to that,
0: however temporarily. Well, you got one cursed anyway. Yeah. Um, I've been playing this game for seven years, and I've been playing a lot Over those seven years. And I have not fought everything in the book. And I know you haven't. I have not. So some encounters are memorable with no other effort put in. And I hope you put in more effort. But all you have to do sometimes to make an encounter memorable is to put a memorable adversary in front of them. I remember exactly my first fight with a banshee. Because Banshees are cool. I remember my first fight with a Beholder. Because Beholders are cool. I remember my first fight with a Dragon. Because Dragons are cool. And I haven't fought everything. I look forward to one day facing a Bodak or a Starspawn. Mm -hmm. Because there are some cool monsters in D&D. And I have flipped through the Monster Manual. And I have seen that these things are out there. And I want to face them. I want to kill those suckers. And just, just putting something exciting in front of me will get me excited.
2: Can't wait till uh, I run a campaign for you where your level one party comes face to face with a tarasque. Ah, the memories it will make. <laughs> I haven't fought a
0: tarasque.
2: I, hmm, I've caught a thing, I've fought a thing called a tarasque. I don't think it was statted like a tarasque. So... Making sure that you have variety, not just in your environments, but in your monsters is going to be very important. But there are a few more things that we can do to the environment as well. We've talked about, uh, I'm not going to rehash all of it again, we've talked about a lot of different things that you can do with the terrain, but it doesn't have to stop there. Hey there friends, Editing Rob
0: here, coming at you from the future, which... Since this is a recorded podcast is still the past, uh, don't, don't think too hard about it. Anyway, Steve and I make these podcasts with kind of a stream-of-consciousness, unscripted, conversational vibe, and sometimes we get a little bit carried away. In a moment, we're about to start talking about layer actions, a mechanic that some monsters have in the Monster Manual and future publications published by the Coast to make significant monsters more special and to give them more actions. We begin, without really any ceremony or segue, talking about using that layer action mechanic of having environmental hazards that take effect on Initiative 20 every round of combat, and how we think they ought to be used as a dispassionate environmental hazard or interesting new mechanic in the combat. Even though we continue to use the phrase lair actions to refer to this, we recognize that they are a separate and distinct mechanic that we really like and think could be utilized more and in a variety of ways and scenarios to jazz up combats in your game. Just wanted to explain ourselves before we get going too far into this. Steve and I have a policy that we would prefer not to do too many pickups or to rehearse these podcasts or script them in any way. So occasionally little things like this come up. We appreciate your understanding and tolerating of these interludes. Okay, back to the show. Right, I was talking about fighting some of these memorable monsters, right? Like the beholder or an aboleth or dragons. Some creatures are just so dang powerful that the places they inhabit, the land that they frequent, is affected by them or infected by them, if you will, and in itself becomes altered and interesting or dangerous. So when you are in a fight With one of these creatures where it lives, it has kind of a home field advantage in lair actions.
2: Once again, uh, my primary exposure to these is from Critical Role, where Mercer has used them in pretty much all of his Keystone battles throughout Campaigns 1 and 2. Thordak had them. Vokodo had them.
0: Final boss in Campaign 2
2: had lair actions out the butt. There you go. Yeah, so many of them, and it's just a way for you to balance out, you know, the action economy in favor of your boss because these are reserved typically for boss encounters to give them, you know, a way to affect multiple characters at the same time. Like uh, in the end of campaign two, everyone had to make a saving throw uh, when they were in that final boss battle, or else. The bad stuff would happen. When they were fighting Vakoto, everyone just took automatic, incrementally increasing fire damage at the start of every round. When they were fighting Thordak, he had environmental effects that he could trigger to damage people in certain areas. And those make boss battles extremely memorable and extremely distinct because they're curated specifically for that battlefield that type of monster or you know that character specifically
0: uh and before we go too much further we should probably talk about what layer actions are just in case it hasn't come up for you as a player or if you haven't utilized them yet as a dm layer actions are things that happen to your players on behalf of your as you said normally it's reserved for boss monsters on behalf of your boss that requires no action or effort on their part uh on initiative count 20 every round in initiative, something happens. Usually it's your choice from a short list of options that affects areas or creatures in an area around that boss creature. Normally they have lower DCs than the boss is capable of in their own right. And normally they have lower damage thresholds or less inhibiting status effects that they impose less inhibiting conditions uh, than the boss monster is capable of it is an extra element that the party has to contend with and take into account that definitely wasn't in the last encounter and it's definitely not going to be in the one that follows
2: right and because this action this effect is not predicated upon a action economy expense on the part of the boss it also means that there is typically not a way for the players to prevent it so you can send the monk in and stun the big bad evil guy doesn't matter the lair action is still going to take effect and you know it can be any variety of effects from dealing damage to forcing them to save against the status effect to healing the big bad evil guy or removing a mm-hmm. status effect from him there's just no end to the versatility that you can use by adding in a lair action. You have personally faced lair
0: actions not that long ago, either in our campaign. I think we alluded to it, or the Subayan fight before. Yes. Uh, where you guys faced off against a, a deranged and twisted fey creature with an obsession with collecting a family for herself.
2: Yeah, it was effectively a a blood witch who used a lair action every turn to grapple and ensnare the party by calling up little creatures from the floor Mm -hmm. to wrap around their legs and, you know, Facsimilate an entanglement upon them. We all got to make some saving throws to see whether or not the little grasping hands were able to latch onto us, but every round we had to figure out who was going to get grabbed at and who was going to get stuck.
0: And that's kind of an important element of lair actions is they're, they're dispassionate, is they are typically random elements that those little monster babies uh, that were spawning every round on initiative count 20 as you fought subayan we had you all roll d20s and whoever was the unluckiest person got a little monster baby to pop up and try and nibble at their ankles and cause one point of bleeding
2: oh that's right yeah it wasn't even saving throws we were just rolling random d20s
0: now they had to hit you you know once they popped up they still may or may not do their job it was something that you had to contend with But their arrival, their interference, their attempt to slow you down and debuff you and to help the owner of the lair was inevitable. Right. It was gonna happen, and there was nothing you could do aside from taking out
2: the boss to stop it. Because this was not a conscious effort on the part of Subayan to say, this turn, we're gonna trap Otto. Nope. Otto just rolled really low. (laughs) He drew the short straw... And uh, the little uh, grotesque little grasping floor babies just crawled on up and latched onto him. Mm-hmm. And they did this because they were at her beck and call. Uh, and this was the only action that they took in combat. They did not damage any of us directly. And they pretty much had one hit point. You know, all we had to do was step on them and they were gone. But they did affect our ability to move the way we wanted to and boy they made auto have a hard time yep but i think the point that i we wanted to make or at least that i wanted to make in this discussion is that there is nothing that says that lair actions can be used exclusively during a boss encounter yep i argue that they should be used in any keystone boss encounter that you plan in your combat because it makes it very memorable very dynamic very unique and it does balance out the action economy especially if you're having like the mini against one sort of scenario but pull these and put them in a random encounter i mean not literally a random encounter but you know a a normal x versus x sort of fight if you're fighting in a cave add in a random chance for falling stalactites. Every turn, one of these things is going to drop down and crush what's underneath it. Roll a die to see where it happens, and you know, maybe it falls on a player character, maybe it falls on the enemy. It doesn't have to be as targeted as a, you know, lair action to say this is something that is being exerted by sheer force of will from the big bad evil guy to harm or hinder the players nope this is just a thing about this environment that makes it inherently dangerous kind of like the the dangerous factors that we talked about in our last episode where you know oh yeah there's a powder keg setting over there or there's a lava flow that runs through the middle of the battlefield separating side a from b but a random element that the players have to watch out for like you know sure we need to go and we need to throw this lever But it's underneath one of those stalactites. And man, these things are falling left and right. You know, do I go ahead and flip it now? Or do I wait to see if that thing's going to fall before I run over there and do it? Whatever happens, I can't end my turn there. There's a stalactite up there. I've got to wait till I can throw that lever on my way through.
0: Players love it when bad guys are hurt by the dungeon master. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. They don't want... To be robbed of the killing blow, and they don't want the villain to die by accident. But it's hilarious when a stalag type falls onto a goblin. You know, it's great when the kinku falls into the fountain or slips on a piece of ice. Especially when no one has the home field advantage. When you're both fighting on neutral ground or just bump into one another in something akin to a random encounter in a dangerous place. When you introduce the threat to the players by having them watch something bad happen to one of your guys. You know, I'm, I'm not above putting an extra guy on the bad guy side of the field just to kill him myself and introduce some
2: weird mechanic. You know, unrelated to lair actions, but very much on the points that you just made, who is your favorite NPC from Critical Role Campaign 2? Spurt! Yep, and uh, what exactly happened to Spurt? How did his story end? He died. Yeah, and how did he die? <laughs> I win. Splat. <laughs> yep, he was a he was an NPC that was killed by Mercer. He, I guess technically he would be a player character. He was intended as an NPC, but your beloved uh, Chris Perkins stepped in to portray him in an extremely memorable way. Ah, <sighs> Chris Perkins. Uh, He is one of my favorite NPCs in that campaign as well, even though he was only there for about 20 minutes. I love Chris Perkins. But, you know, he came, he lived, he was hilarious, he died, it was more hilarious. Mm -hmm. But that's just to say, you know, yes, players like watching bad guys hurt each other in comical ways. And what is more comical than bad guys getting crushed under stalactites or getting shot... Dozens of feet in the air by a geyser suddenly erupting right underneath them. One of the best examples that I can think of of having a a lair action, so to speak, in a normal combat encounter is in The Princess Bride. The Dread Pirate Roberts leads Princess Buttercup into the fire swamp, which is infamous for several dangers, uh, not the least of which is its namesake. The bursts of flame that erupt from the ground at random intervals and random places. Uh, Once again, something very easily simulated with a die roll. Whoever happens to be unlucky enough to stand on a hidden location known only to the DM when that number is rolled will be assaulted with a bout of fire damage. Uh, This is something that can be used to the player's advantage should it last long enough to roll an enemy into it as the Dread Pirate Roberts did in that encounter. It could be something that could be advantageous to the players, it could be something that could be disadvantageous to them, or it could be purely random at the discretion of the DM. If I was to implement something like this, it might linger for a round or so, or, again, as in the movie, you might get a clue as to where it's going to pop up the next round, so that you have one chance to evade the incoming damage, or uh, try to make sure that your enemies wind up there.
0: So uh, uh, we promised towards the end of the last episode that we were going to crank everything up to 11. All of the elements that we have discussed up to this point, the interesting and oft-forgotten mechanics like lighting, cover, and difficult terrain, and elements of the terrain like elevation and environmental hazards, or even obstacles or hurdles that they have to face. Perhaps a... Problem that is auxiliary to the actual combat that needs to be addressed before all is said and done. Perhaps a ticking clock, a variety of enemy types and functions, and hazards innate to the venue like lair actions. All of this coming together into a single, hyper dramatic, memorable encounter. Taking all that you have learned across the campaign and your experience as a dungeon master to give your players the final battle of your campaign. Yep. This is where you pull out the stops, where you dust off all the tricks and put all of these elements together.
2: That's right. Nowhere is this more important than in the final battle because the last thing that you want to do... (laughs) Literally the last thing you want to do. In the culmination of your campaign and the big reveal of your villains' machinations that they have been uh, seeding and cultivating and bringing to fruition throughout the course of however many months or years you've been playing in this campaign... The last thing you want to do is have that outshone by the duel with the sahawagan Prince in the water at level 7. You want to take everything that you have learned throughout all of these campaigns and throughout all of these episodes of Bardic Twinspiration and put them to use in the final battle.
0: When you are preparing for a big boss fight, the final battle of the campaign, when you have finally cornered the big, bad, evil guy, or when he has finally tracked you down, whichever the case may be, bringing together as many of these elements as you can, not to pollute it, not to overdo it, but taking each of these tools off your shelf and saying, how can you help me? How could I use you? And should I? Will give you the kind of experience the send off to your campaign that you are looking for because the fight shouldn't be easy it should be you keep using the word dynamic but it's a good word make it dynamic and interesting and exciting you know fill it with cover fill it with chandeliers to drop on people or to swing up to an elevated position by this point in the campaign your wizards no fly and have added a three-dimensional element to the fight, and be prepared considering that. Have the evil guy bring his finest lieutenants and a humble horde of his minions to bear that have different types of weapons and different forms of attack and different ranges and damage types, different amounts of health and roles that they fill in the encounter. Have them utilize lair actions, to dispassionately add this chaotic element of hindrance to the party's efforts. You know, this is the the end of the campaign. Your players' characters are of a high enough level, they can take it. Probably. You know, pull out the stops, let it go, let it rip.
2: Good thoughts, good thoughts.
0: Well, we are kind of rubbing up against our time limit again. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? Any final thoughts pertaining to the... Final battle of your campaign, creating hopefully the most dramatic and memorable encounter thus
2: far? Not specifically. I hope one day to get to the point where I am orchestrating my own encounter with the BBEG and uh, hope to start crafting a homebrew campaign soon. And if all goes according to plan, then, you know, maybe y'all will be privy to that process, if not participants in it. But in the meantime, I just want to make sure that. I take the time to thank all of you for sitting through our treatise, as it has become, on uh, improving combats at your table, and hope that you have really been able to benefit in at least one small way, if not multiple ways, and hopefully gain some inspiration to take back to your group. And let's say that someone wanted to hear some more of your thoughts on this and other matters. Uh, where would they go to find the content that you have created?
0: I have articles up on Misty Mountain Gaming's dungeon feed, and if the kind of thoughts and opinions that you hear on this podcast resonate with you and you're eager to hear more, I'm also on the Twitterverse. You can reach me at dndwannabe, or both of us at Twinspiration.
2: And if you have any questions about anything that we've covered in this episode, you need some clarification or just want us to expound upon any of these points or, you know, even contribute some of your own ideas, we would love to discuss those with you. Uh, We have a Discord link in the description where you can interface with us directly as well as the rest of the community that we are cultivating there. We would be very excited to have you stop by and contribute.
0: And thus ends our contribution to making memorable combats. As Steve said, we hope you were entertained and hopefully informed or potentially even educated. Who knows what we're talking about next time? Guess you'll
2: just have to tune in and find out. Until then, I'm Rob. And I'm Steven. And we really appreciate you stopping by. See you in the next episode. See you next time. The outro music you're listening to right now is called Mega Epic, and the intro music is called Super Epic. Both were composed by the wonderfully talented Alexander Nakarada and utilized under a Creative Commons license. You can find more of his music at serpentsoundstudios.com. If you enjoyed our content, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your listening app of choice. To keep up with us on social media, look us up on facebook.com forward slash bardictwinspiration and on Twitter at Be Twinspiration. Want to interact with us directly? Come join our Discord. After all, who are we if not people who are willing to roll the dice on making some new friends? Link's in the description. Come check it out.
0: What is the next thing that they actually fight in Lord of the Rings? Is it the orcs? Uh, It was the Watcher. Yeah. No,
2: no let's see no the thing. let's see they it's kind of ring wraiths
0: again until rivendell after rivendell they don't really fight until the watcher
2: yeah it gets a little bit different i think whether we're talking books or movies but they end up being forced down by the storm from the peaks of the mountains trying to find the pass to go down to the secret elven door to moria and they end up fighting the watcher in the water then they go in from that and fight the goblins